Support for this podcast provided by Wisconsin Historical Society Press, proud publishers of Madison in the 60s by Stuart Levitin, an absorbing and evocative account of 10 years that changed the city forever. To order Madison in the 60s and other beautiful books that share our state's centuries-long history and culture in service to the mission of the Wisconsin Historical Society, visit wisconsinhistory.org whspress. Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. In fact, it's the only radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Today is our second and last show during this fall pledge drive, and our guest today is a longtime friend of community radio and other alternative media, Dave Zirin. His new book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, was just published by our friends at the New Press and brought him to a Madison Book event at the Cap Times Idea Fest earlier this month. But before we get to that conversation, which I know you're looking forward to, I'm pleased to say we have two people to thank for generous contributions they made during last week's show, Rick from Monona and Tim from Footville, Wisconsin. And you know, it's easy for you to be just like Rick and Tim. All you have to do is Give us a call at 608-256-2001 or go online at wrtfm.org or open up that snazzy new Wart app. We'll appreciate it. You'll feel good about it. Now then, on to the reason you tuned in. You probably know about Colin Kaepernick, the former quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. In 2012, he led the Niners to their first Super Bowl appearance since 1994, a playoff run that you might recall included a record-setting performance against our Green Bay Packers. The next year, his first full season as a starter, the 49ers almost made it back to the big game, narrowly losing the NFC Championship game to the Seattle Seahawks, led by former Badger Russell Wilson. 2014 and 2015 weren't that hot either for Cap or the Niners, and after several coaching changes, by 2016 he was back to being a backup. In the 49ers' third preseason game in August 2016, again against the Packers, Kaepernick sat on the bench during the playing of the U.S. National Anthem rather than stand. It was a low-key, personal protest against systemic racism and police literally getting away with murder. There was a fair amount of outrage, but nothing that would compare to what happened after Kaepernick and former Green Beret and NFL player Nate Boyer discussed the matter and concluded that taking a knee rather than sitting on the bench would be a more powerful and a more respectful protest. Of such miscalculations is history made. Kaepernick regained his status as the starting quarterback and had an excellent season. 16 touchdowns against just four interceptions and a league-leading 6.8 yards per carry. But he also knelt before every game and was vilified from the White House to the outhouse. He became a free agent, but no other team would sign him. He has not played professional football since. 
but what of other athletes? Not just fellow professionals, but athletes in high school and college. Athletes who felt as he did about police brutality and systemic racism. Athletes whom he inspired and gave language to. Athletes who also knelt or raised their fists in the years 2016 to 2018. How did they come to take that action? And what reaction did they face when they did? It is their stories, not Colin Kaepernick's, which Dave Zirin tells in this powerful and important new book. It is a book Dave Zirin is supremely qualified to write. As sports editor for The Nation, columnist for The Progressive, host of the Edge of Sports podcast, and past winner of the New York Press Club Award for Sports Journalism, he is one of the foremost analysts of the role of sports in society which is why Utney Reader named him one of the 50 visionaries who are changing our world. The Kaepernick Effect is his 11th book since 2005, when What's My Name, Fool? Sports and Resistance in the United States was published by Haymarket Books, which has also published The John Carlos Story, The Sports Moment That Changed the World, written with that great athlete and social activist, and other books. Among his earlier books for the New Press, a People's History of Sports in the United States, part of Howard Zinn's People's History series. His website is DaveZiron.com, his Twitter handle, at Edge of Sports. It is a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Dave Zirin. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Stu. I noted in the introduction your work with John Carlos, which was a transformative event in your career and in your life. To a considerable extent, we have John Carlos to thank for this book, don't we? We do. Clearly, you've been listening to some interviews I've done on some other platforms because I am holding this up very highly, the, the way in which John influenced me for this book. Uh, I wrote John's memoir with him. We've been very good friends for, for years. And a couple of years ago, John said to me, you know, after we raised our fists on the medal stand in 1968, a lot of young people started doing it at track and field events. And that immediately made the synapses in my brain that were once the property of a history major at McAllister College just go off and all these different little little pops and whistles. And I started to think about, wow, what, what, who were those people? Like what happened to all the young people who raised their fist in 1968? Why, why is there no history book about them? What were their experiences like? What was the fallout after they did that? These were the questions that I had, and I realized I would never really be able to answer them. But it did make me think a lot about all the young people who had taken a knee after Colin Kaepernick had taken a knee. And, you know, I was thinking of all the sort of one-off stories about this high school in Detroit or that middle school in Texas and this cheerleader in Washington, D.C. or that uh, soccer player in rural Georgia. And I was thinking of all their experiences that I'd read about or written about for the nation or the progressive and it just got me really thinking really, really hard about um, telling their story in a holistic way. Like, like not, because I was really starting to get concerned as I thought about it, that their experiences would become memory hold, would become forgotten. And we would only remember Colin Kaepernick taking that knee and not the many people who really experienced the effect of him taking that knee and said to themselves, hey, if he did it, I can do it too. I can register my objections to police brutality and racial inequity on my playing field. 
And I feel like that's a story that needed, needed, needed to be told. So I went about um, calling and contacting folks and, you know, doing online research and finding names, contacting people through social media. And people were very willing to talk and share their stories with me. And I spoke to people as young as 15 years old. And, I, and it was an amazing experience to just go through that with each of them, like really talking through what the lessons were from their experience of taking a knee. And then the book in my mind changed even more after the summer of 2020, after the police murder of, of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests that erupted from that killing, which were the largest protests in the history of the United States, which we don't say nearly enough, I don't think. And I, I went back and started to speak to all the people who I'd spoken with. And to a person, they were in the streets. They were out there. They were organizing. And that made me realize that while many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020, one of them absolutely runs straight through the playing fields of the United States. There's a lot to unpack in that. But just as a threshold question about the history, in the years before social media and crowd outsourcing projects like this, could somebody have even written the, this kind of book on the Carlos Smith effect? I don't think so. I mean, I have no idea how one would even go about it. I mean, you would have to go back into the microfilm and the microfiche and see if articles had been written. But about- even, even contemporaneously, I mean, even at the time, could you have written a book like this without the ability to, to crowdsource and contact people through Facebook or LinkedIn or, or other social media. Yeah, I don't, I honestly, just from a methodological standpoint, I'm not sure how you even would. Because, I mean, I, I have a couple of stories of rebellious high school athletes in my book, A People's History of Sports in the United States. And those stories came completely by happenstance of talking to people and they said, oh, you'd never know what happened at my high school. Let me tell you about the, the revolutionary cheer that the cheerleaders came up with. And, and then they would tell me what the cheer was. And I included a couple of those in my book, but those were luck. You know, those sort of fell into my lap. Like I didn't systematically try to find them. I'm not sure how I would even be able to go about that to systematically either contemporaneously or going back decades. I mean, I think social media, just like I think it was a prerequisite for the movement and the spreading of the idea of taking a knee, social media is also a prerequisite for me actually finding the people and being able to interview them. Speaking of the movement, the epilogue takes us back to where the book essentially began with Dr. John Carlos, who says, quote, I want them to study and realize I wasn't in the moment, I was in the movement. What did he mean by that? Well, it's just so important for people like John Carlos to to demystify this idea that he's just a symbol, that he was just someone who was part of a moment, who raised his fist, and not someone who did the hard work of movement building both before and after that moment. And John Carlos is also recognizing that we live in a society that loves to extol and celebrate those kinds of iconic moments while completely undercutting the idea that there was a movement and that surrounded the raising of that fist, a movement called the Olympic Project for Human Rights that fought for for social justice, not just in the United States, but throughout the world. 
And so that Olympic project for human rights part gets left out of many of the stories that are told about Smith and Carlos raising their fist. Similarly, I was seeing the Colin Kaepernick story being told as a story just about Colin Kaepernick. And I just couldn't abide that because it felt way too much like the oldest okie doke in the book, which is this idea of you extol the individual and leave out the mass. I mean, our country does that partially because, you know, we're a celebrity culture obsessed, but I think our culture and our country also does that because it's a way of disempowering masses of people. Because you think, well, if I'm not like this awesome person who I've read about in books and seen posters of, then surely I could never do what they do. They're special. I'm not. John Carlos is saying that's not the case. We all have the capacity to be change makers if we're willing to put it on the line. And the young people I spoke with, they agree with that and they lived that. And I didn't want that lesson to be lost either. You refer in the preface to the quote, forgotten hundreds, perhaps thousands of athletes who engaged in this type of protest. After all your research, do you have a handle on just how many there were at the three levels? Uh, impossible to know, just that it numbers, um, it, when, when you think, when you really calculate the number of times it was a full team and not just an individual, and you are talking about numbers um, in the thousands, and it's, it's remarkable. Like, like you think about the United States and sports and how it's drilled into our heads about sports and politics and the need to keep them separate. And, you know, the way it's discouraged, particularly in young athletes, to show any sense of individuality. I mean, it, it really is a mind boggler that so many saw what Colin Kaepernick did and immediately felt in themselves a sense of mission, but also a sense of method. Like this idea that, well, he took a knee, I can do it too. And I can have a, I can have a similar catalytic reaction in my own community. It's like so many of the people I spoke with were like, were like carpenters in search of a hammer. You know, that they were people who wanted to build, to construct, to do, to fight back, but felt like they had no method by which they could do it. That's what Colin Kaepernick gave them. He gave them a method. And as soon as they saw, wait a minute, you know, I, I can take a knee during the anthem and show my dissatisfaction with the gap between what this country promises and what it actually delivers. They were ready to rumble. The imagery of taking a knee. I mentioned in the introduction how the protest began as his just sitting on the bench and then became taking a knee. Would the imagery or effect have been anywhere near as powerful without that change? No, I don't think so at all because the, there's something about taking a knee that has, I think, a great resonance for people, whether it's seen as a penitent gesture, a gesture of prayer, in other words, whether it's seen as a gesture of respect. It was certainly something that was used during the civil rights movement, the idea of taking a knee at places where there had been instances of brutality. There are famous photos of Dr. King taking a knee you know, that there's a power it has in the imagination and it has a power in the world of sports. Anybody who's played sports, particularly youth sports, know those three words very well. Take a knee. You know, it means we're all going to gather around and listen to the coach for a moment of seriousness and weight and gravity. So there's a gravity to the gesture 
that's very important. And also, I think there's a, a kind of aggressiveness to it as well, that just sitting does not really give you. Like if you're sitting, you know, you're just basically sitting. There's nothing more passive than sitting except for, actually, I think nothing's more passive than sitting. Even lying down has a certain symbolic value. Um, but this idea of taking a knee, it, it's out there. And we see how quickly it, it, it captured the imagination or captured the ire of the country. Like, Stu, if, if we went to a Madison, Wisconsin softball game or if we went to a Green Bay Packers playoff game and they played the anthem and you and I decided to take a knee, everybody would know exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it as soon as they saw our knee hit the ground. There's a lot of power in that, in that kind of universality. If we were sitting, they might just think, oh, he's got a bad back or he, he can't stand. They, they wouldn't, they wouldn't exactly. know why we were just sitting. And then there's the tragic co-imagery of the other very famous knee yes. from your neck of the words, Derek Chauvin. Yes, uh, the knee on the neck of George Floyd. And, you know, it doesn't take a, an American studies professor from Columbia to immediately become seized by that juxtaposition of the knee that Colin Kaepernick and so many, so many others took as a show of peaceful civil disobedience against police violence. And then the knee used as an actual weapon of, of murder. And when I went to protests in the summer of 2020, you know, largely to, to report and observe and understand what was happening, um, in addition, of course, my own disgust and anger, it was very, very striking to me how many people had signs that referenced Colin Kaepernick or referenced the juxtaposition of the two knees. We're talking with Dave Zirin. His new book from the New Press is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Dave, as I mentioned, we're in the middle of the WRT Fall Pledge Drive. I know you're a big supporter of alternative media. You write for The Nation, The Progressive, and so on. Where do you see the role of specifically community radio in the media landscape trying to break through with some more honest and probing coverage of issues like this? Well, first and foremost, uh, if we're going to talk about my uh, community radio bona fides, we got to include I've got a show on WPFW Pacifica here in D.C. called The Collision. People can listen to it online 10 a.m. Eastern on uh, Thursdays. So I, I absolutely, I believe in community radio and I put my money or lack of money where my mouth is. Because uh, of course, don't get paid for doing it, but love doing it anyway. And it's important. It's got a critical function in our society. And, I, and I've been doing community radio for years, for many years. And after Colin Kaepernick took that knee, I felt like it was only through community radio that we were getting real honest discussions about why he was doing it. Because there was an immediate push on behalf of the Trump campaign and the people around the Trump campaign to say, well, he's taking a knee because he hates the troops, or he's taking a knee because he hates the flag, or he hates the country. And they did everything but talk about the actual reason why he was taking a knee, which was about police violence and racial inequity. That's the story he did not want to tell. Because if you want to have that debate, then you have to justify the killings. And rather than try to justify the killings, which you know that they completely will defend, because you know the, the police right or wrong is the credo of the sort of Trump 
fascistic mindset. You have instead, you know, a discussion on community radio about police violence and a discussion on community radio about tactics. Like I was involved with debates on community radio that were very productive about, okay, is this the best way to challenge police brutality? You know, is this something that uh, people who are part of the movement should support or reject? Is this something we should replicate? How do you support Colin Kaepernick in this process, this big NFL player on this national stage? What can one do on a community or grassroots level? Like all of these questions were part of the community, community radio dialogue and debate. And, you know, you didn't see that anywhere uh, in more of the, the mainstream media, let alone the right wing media. So, friends, if you want to keep the important debates happening and moving forward, please do give us a call at 608-256-2001 or go online to WRTFM.org or use that snazzy new WART app. We'll appreciate it. You'll feel good about it. And maybe we can make some progress. We're talking with Dave Zirin. The book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Were there athletes you interviewed who didn't make the cut in the book or whom you wrote about and then asked to be cut? On the second question, I did just I did something that I've never done before for a book, uh, but it, I felt like it was very important given the age of a lot of the people with whom I was speaking, and the fact that a lot of them were very emotionally honest with me about what they went through, is I sent them what I'd written, and gave them the opportunity to either edit or say to me, you know what, Dave, I just don't want to be in this book. That's just too much publicity. My family's been through enough. Like I just wanted to give them all a second chance to say no to being in the book. And of the dozens of people I spoke with, only one person took me up on that and said, this isn't for me. Um, there were interviews I did that did not end up in the book. And that was not really at all about the content. It was more about some things I really wanted to preserve for the book, which was geographical diversity, sports diversity, and I wanted to make sure that there was an even-ish number of young men's and women's sports because I didn't want the struggle of women to get written out of the history. And women athletes had to deal with their own specific concerns that men athletes didn't have to deal with, namely an overlay of sexism that came with the backlash for what they did. So having that level of balance was important. Also, I probably interviewed you know, I have several white athletes in the book with whom I speak. Um, I didn't want there to be too many white athletes. I mean, I wanted some white athletes in there to talk about the role of white people when fighting racism. I thought that was an important part of the discussion. But I didn't want a book that was, say, 33% white athletes because that wouldn't be necessarily representative of what actually happened. So, um, so, so I, I kept a close eye on things like uh, demographic balance and sports balance, which led to some cuts. But even the people I cut from the book, I sent them free copies because I really wanted to show an appreciation for everybody for at least taking the time to speak with me, which they certainly didn't have to do. Did any of the athletes you interviewed have any second thoughts or regrets? No, not a one. Um, there were certainly some who thought there were things they wished had, done, had happened differently and maybe some things they wish they'd said differently, but the actual act of taking the knee and of putting the question of police violence right at the center of their community 
that was something there were no regrets about whatsoever. There was only a feeling of tremendous pride, even when it ended up with them being kicked off the team, losing friends. I mean, there was just a tremendous and fierce sense of pride about what they had done. In terms of being kicked off the team and the implications of that, many of the black college athletes were likely first generation of their family to have gone to college, and they were only able to do so because of the athletic scholarship, which they could quite possibly lose by taking a knee. Do you sympathize with those who didn't protest just for that reason? No, I don't necessarily sympathize with them, but I certainly understand and relate to why they wouldn't. And frankly, that's true at all levels. And I guess sympathy is the right word because I sympathize with the high school student who feels like, well, I'm going to be, you know, completely stabbed in the back by my teammates, stabbed in the front by my coach, and there's no political space for me to speak, and I don't want to just become some punching bag for everybody, therefore I'm not going to do it. It's hard to be a political person in high school, and I'm sympathetic. At the collegiate level, yeah, I'm sympathetic if somebody um, has a scholarship that can be uh, taken away at a moment's notice, and they're worried of jeopardizing that. Of course I'm sympathetic. And at the professional level, they're risking a paycheck um, and, and their employment. And just like Colin Kaepernick has been blackballed from the NFL. So what I'm sympathetic to is the sort of objective reality of what makes it so difficult and the risks involved. But it's the risk that gives what they did so much power. If it had been allowed, it wouldn't have had nearly the resonance. So I pay tribute to the risk in this book and give respect to those who are willing to take that risk. Because to me, that's the foundation, not just of this movement, but of all social change. Is kneeling still risky? Uh, context is everything. You know, I, I've got Google search alerts on this stuff and it still happens a great deal. And in places where it's kind of a team activity to show the community that they're taking a stance for, you know, for an, an, an unracist, an anti-racist world, you know, that, that, that can sort of have a bit of a blunted effect. It can be important and it can challenge ideas, um, but it has a bit of a blunted effect. Uh, but when it's a situation like an email I just got the other day of a, of a small town, um, I think in the, in, in the Big West, um, in Big Sky Country, where there had been all of these racist Snapchat messages going back and forth at a high school. And so a team takes a knee in protest of that, and then they get a backlash from the parents who are calling and complaining. You know, that, that, that's, that's courage. And it shows that the knee still matters because when you take that knee, like I said earlier, everybody knows exactly what you are doing it in reference to. And if you're in a racist space, that can be very powerful. You watch an NFL game today and they've got end racism in the end zone and they're partnering with Jay-Z and they've got an Inspire Change initiative. Is this performative hypocrisy or, meaning, or a meaningful effort? Uh, it's performative hypocrisy. Um, the NFL has, a, if the NFL was serious about fighting racism, Colin Kaepernick would have a job, period. If the NFL was serious about fighting racism, there would be a black franchise owner, period. If the NFL was serious about fighting racism, there would be more black executives and coaches, period. Before the NFL starts lecturing all of us about inspiring change, they might want to do well to inspire some change in themselves. What, what 
goes through your mind when you see Jerry Jones linking arms with his players on the field? Uh, that they understand that one of the things that Colin Kaepernick represented wasn't just a symbol against police violence and um, racial inequity, but he represented a threat to the labor and racial discipline that's a prerequisite for the NFL to even survive. Uh, the NFL is a league that's 70% black. There are no guaranteed contracts. Uh, the, the average career only lasts three years. You put your body through hell. And they need to have a situation where players are willing to live with that, with a very, very unfair set of affairs. And the only way they can have that kind of labor and racial discipline is through compliance. So when Colin Kaepernick takes that knee, it immediately turns upside down the labor and racial discipline so incredibly necessary for the NFL to operate. So why did Jerry Jones link arms with his players and take a knee? By the way, we have to make sure we say he did not take a knee during the anthem itself. He took a knee as this symbolic show of solidarity before the anthem. Um, it, was, it, was, it was complete horse pucky. It was a way to try to assuage his workers and show that he was on their side. Because when he took that knee, Stu, if you remember, it was because Donald Trump had called them SOBs. And the players were basically ready to not play that week. They were ready to say, screw this. You know, they were looking at the franchise owners throwing millions of dollars in Trump's pocket. Well, these franchise owners had to show which side they were on because, you know, you can't be neutral on a moving train. And one of the things that was so um, important to recognize, one of the things is that um, the, the presence of Donald Trump and his desire to divide people on racial grounds because he's a racist uh, is really what led so much fuel to the fire of Colin Kaepernick and what he represented um, because he saw a target and that made the story even much bigger than it otherwise would have been. Which gave the, particularly the NFL owners, some sort of mixed emotions because they're on the one hand they're risking the disruption of their economic model on the other hand this is good for their political model exacto mundo said perfectly Stuart. i mean someone asked me the other day a, a question that is um very difficult to answer that you really have to think through which is if you're an nfl franchise owner would you rather have no political athletes so the trains can run on time and you can make your money in peace or would you rather have political athletes for the purposes of a backlash that uh, that you would benefit politically from because you yourself are a Trump supporter, you know? And it's like, I'm sure for them, it, it's just a series of tactics of what to do given this. I'm sure all things being equal, they'd rather have no politics, but if they're gonna be politics, they're gonna take advantage of them for their own ends, which they've clearly shown in different ways. Uh, throughout this whole process and not just in the National Football League. How did the anthem become so ubiquitous in American sporting events and, and help advance the politicalization of sport? Well, first we got to understand that the anthem is a war song. Uh, it was written during the War of 1812 by a slave owner named Francis Scott Key. And, you know, all the lyrics about the bombs bursting in air, etc., and there's also a third verse that we never sing that's about uh, the killing of, of escaped enslaved people who are fighting against the United States during the War of 1812. 
So it's, it's a rather wretched song and not just from a melodic perspective. Uh, it doesn't even become, it's written in 1814, and it doesn't become a part of sporting events until World War I as sort of a support the troops thing um, in baseball. Then baseball stops playing the anthem. Nowhere is playing the anthem. Then it's brought back during World War II. Um, and then something very interesting happens in that the, the world of sports and other institutions like Little League, Boy Scouts, things like that, they start integrating the anthem into their activities really as a signal at the start of the Cold War that the United States is now effectively in a permanent state of war and in a permanent state of conflict with the Eastern Bloc. And the national anthem represents something special that will um, sculpt our young people, particularly young men, into getting ready for the wars of the future. Now, you see another shift with the national anthem um, really after 9-11, where it becomes even super souped up and uh, organizations like the National Football League enter into financial partnerships with the Pentagon and it becomes an even greater spectacle. And as Howard Bryant you know, argues very, very convincingly in his book, The Heritage, it's that hyper-politicization after 9-11, which is brought to the football field, that then uh, creates a space that NFL players feel like it's completely uh, legit for them to say, well, here's what I think politically about what's going on in the world. And then we get, in addition, after 9-11, we get George Steinbrenner going absolutely berserk and, and essentially locking people into the stadium for the seventh inning stretch so, so they, can't, they can't even go take a pee. Yeah, George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, when they started playing God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch, he had ushers uh, and security guards put up little chains um, by the bleachers so people would have to stay in the bleachers during the seventh inning stretch. And when a young man who I've interviewed uh, decided that he was going to use the bathroom during the seventh inning stretch and heaven for Fen stretch, he was kicked out of the stadium, and with the help of the ACLU, he sued the Yankees. And that's what got rid of the chains. And yes, I think we all see the attendant irony of chains as a symbol of freedom. How much did the lyrics of glorifying the death of enslaved peoples and the slave-owning history of Francis Scott Key have to do with accelerating the spread of the Kaepernick effect? Uh, is that, is that yeah. something that people focused on when, when they were getting into, yes, this is something to protest? Yeah, not in every case. Um, there were some very high-profile articles written about it. And in one of the stories I tell in the book, the story of Garfield High School in Seattle, uh, where the entire football team and then the entire soccer and softball team all took a knee, it was actually very critical. Uh, like the, the, the coach of the football team, a man named Joey Thomas, who I interviewed, like his uh, communication with his team about whether or not they should take a knee was certainly, yes, about police brutality and protest and Colin Kaepernick. But Joey Thomas, who sees himself not just as a coach, but quite correctly sees himself as an educator, made a big point to teach the team about the history of the song. And that made a lot of people on the team think, wait, like, wait a minute, is this something that I even want to uh, pay tribute to? Do I really want to have my helmet in my hand and my other hand over my heart while this song plays? 
there's another teacher you write about, uh, an academic advisor for the Minneapolis North High School team named Mirian Sirdar. Uh, Mirjan. Mirjan Sirdar. Yeah. Who's a descendant, a direct descendant of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, founder of the, the Nation of Islam, who describes himself as an organizer turned teacher instead of the other way around. And, and he says, and he didn't just teach his students how to think, but he taught them what to think about Kaepernick and the need to protest. I mean, he's very overt about where he wanted his students to end up in, in their understanding. If you were a parent of one of those young student athletes, would you think that that was proper for a teacher to have that amount of result-oriented lessons? I'll be honest, I'd be absolutely thrilled. And I would be, in a, I would debate other parents who are less thrilled. Like, I think, you know, do we really want our students to learn or do we just want them to regurgitate facts? And let's face it, you learn by doing. So I would rather, rather have my kids, and I have two teenage kids, go through the process of being influenced by a teacher and being part of a demonstration and then say regretting it than I would them not being a part of that process at all. I think it's a golden opportunity. Uh, for people to educate themselves when they take a part in struggle and to have a teacher who encourages students to do that. I mean, I think that's actually a gift, not something that is somehow inappropriate or improper. Of course, I would be upset if my child felt compelled or pressured to do something they didn't want to do. But I don't think that's what Mirjan Sirdar was doing. I think he was in this story, he was laying out just some basic facts for the football team relative to some instances of police brutality that had already taken place um, in the city of Minneapolis. And ooh, if only that city had listened to that, to the Minneapolis North High School team and Merjan Sirdar, um, you know, may, maybe uh, George Floyd would still be alive and Minneapolis would not have had to go through what it went through. One of the strong undercurrents of the book is the extent to which Trayvon Martin is effectively this generation's Emmett Till. Yeah, that was something that came to me as I was talking to folks because the name that they said more than uh, Colin Kaepernick's name was the name of, um, uh, of Trayvon Martin. And it reminded me so much of when I've seen interviews with civil rights activists and they speak about being children themselves in the 1950s and learning about Emmett Till being lynched and brutalized in Mississippi and the experience of being marked by the memory of Emmett Till throughout their lives. I think this young generation has that same kind of feeling about Trayvon Martin. Like it was just something that was mentioned over and over again by them. And it makes sense because if you're 19 years old now, that means you're 10 years old when Trayvon Martin is killed. You know, think about the implications of that. Um, th that's what a lot of folks live with. And I think when you're 10 years old, you're old enough to understand what happened, but still young enough to wonder why it had to happen. And I think that, that that's just it was something very powerful that a lot of folks had to deal with. Is it right, though, to consider Trayvon Martin a victim of police brutality or more police negligence in not prosecuting George Zimmerman. Well, that's the thing. Emmett Till wasn't killed by police either. Um, he was killed by um, a community of racists. And then the part of Emmett Till's story, which is so harrowing, is the boastfulness by which they took his life and yet still no justice in a courtroom.
um, no justice in the community, no justice by a prejudiced jury. And you look at Trayvon Martin's story, of course, he wasn't killed by a police officer. He was killed by a wannabe police officer who stalked Trayvon Martin, even though the operator on the other end of the 9-11, call told him to stop it. He went and did it anyway and killed him. And then again, you know, first of all, it took, people forget this, it took dozens and dozens of high school walkouts and protests by the basketball team, the Miami Heat, to even get uh, George Zimmerman arrested. Like they didn't even want to arrest him after he killed Trayvon Martin. Um, and, you know, he eventually went to trial and of course was found to be not guilty of murder after murdering somebody, after stalking and killing a 14 year old. And so that stuck with people in a, in a deeply, deeply, deeply intimate way. That idea that, you know, because I think people can understand intellectually that you're going to have individual racists who are going to do horrible things. But then when you see that your society institutionally is willing to not only turn a blind eye to it, but to support it, that's just too much. We're talking with Dave Zyron. His new book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Friends, I'm going to take just another moment to remind you that today is your last chance during this fall pledge drive to show your support for Madison Bookbeat. You know, the fact that you are listening right now shows that you care about ideas, you care about news, you care about public affairs. Well, so do we. And to tell you the truth, I'm pretty proud of what we've done since we started this show 21 months ago, bringing you a wide array of local and national authors. Important new voices like Sarah M. Broom, Danielle Evans, Danez Smith, and Barrett Swanson. Established superstars like David Marinus, Carl Hyacin, Alison Bechtel. We've learned about the women's suffrage procession of 1913, the Indian nations of Wisconsin, interracial marriage, the Wisconsin idea, black Wisconsin soldiers in the Civil War, the Nuremberg trials, the economics of a small city hospital, and of course, a bit about rock and roll, and on and on. I am thankful beyond words of the opportunity Wart has given me to bring these authors to you, and that means I'm thankful to you for keeping Wart alive and thriving for close to 46 years. But there are more books to be written, more news to cover, more public affairs to discuss, and we've got to keep on keeping on. We know you listen. We know you give. So please, make that call to 608-256-2001 or go online at wardfm.org or open up that fine Ward app. Thank you. Now back to our conversation with Dave Zirin about his new book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. Some athletes like Megan Rapinoe did this entirely on their own without telling anybody. Some discussed it with their teammates and coaches, what they were doing and why. Some like Bruce Maxwell, formerly of the Oakland A's, not only let them know, but essentially gave them veto power by saying if anyone objected, they'd find another way to protest. If you had been an athlete in those years, which of those three models would you have followed? I don't know, which of those would you have followed, Stu? This is a good question. I, you know, I think that because of the potential blowback for on the teammates and the team, I personally would probably have wanted to discuss it with people and at least give them an opportunity to prepare themselves for how they would respond to see if they wanted to 
participate and if they and if they want to debate with me whether or not it was the right thing to do i think i think the respect i think that would be showing respect for your teammates and, and your institution i hear you Stu. I, I i guess i would view it purely and entirely as a tactical question as opposed to a principled question like if i'm on a team like uh, Rodney Axon, who I interview in the book, and his teammates are throwing around the N-word left and right, and you've complained about it and nobody's doing anything, you know, then it's like, well, why do I even want to talk to these people? You know, I'm just going to take a knee and, you know, come, come, come what may, you know, let's what, but if I'm in a situation like at a place like Garfield, where a couple of kids were going to take a knee without telling anybody and the coach got wind of it, I totally think the coach did the right thing by saying, well, let's make it a team discussion and let's talk about it together as a community instead of just you going off as one or two people doing it. Because Rodney's teammates had broken the bond. They, they, yes. had, they had made the, the first offense. Speaking of the N-word, almost all the athletes you write about are black and almost all of them faced racist taunts and attacks, which you recount in their quoted remarks by N-ER or N-ERS. I assume that in the actual interviews, at least some of them used the actual oh, sure. word and, and not the circumlocution, quote, the N-word. Did you have any internal debate or discussion with your editor on this point, on how to present that? Well, my editor left it, left it up to me entirely. And, you know, partly because of um, my own feelings about that word. I just wasn't comfortable putting it to paper. I mean, it's interesting. Like, I think I've just been changed very much by, by the past several years also, because I'll give you another example. You look at my people's history of sports in the United States. I talk about sports under slave times and I say slaves, this slaves, that slaves organize this. Now, now I write enslaved people instead of slaves because I'm, I've listened to some of the scholarship and some of the arguments about why just calling people slaves and not enslaved people can be very reductionist about who they were and 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 and, and what they and, and and what they were relative to the society. And I'm not saying everybody has to do that, but I'm saying that for me personally, you know, that this has been a transformative process for me as well. And I guess there's a voice in my head also that, you know, was thinking about young people, you know, reading this book. And I just wanted to present it to them in a way that um, that would be the most palatable for them and their parents as well. Um, so I, I go, I went back and forth on it. It wasn't an easy decision, but at the end of the day, I just thought about it like, well, I'm a right, I'm a, I'm a white writer and I don't necessarily need to, you know, put that word in bold. You know, as, as many times as I would have had to use it in the book because of the incredible racism that so many of these young people faced. And if one of the athletes had said, look, I, I, this, this is the word I heard. I want people to read this word and understand it. Would you have gone along with that in, in that particular instance or, or said, nah, we have to have consistency. We're not using the word. I probably would have gone with consistency in that regard. And I would have, um, but I would have made sure that they were happy. And remember, everybody saw what I wrote, like I said earlier. So nobody saw that and said that. They all had the opportunity to say that to me because I sent them the text. Kaepernick's former teammate on the 49ers, the safety Eric Reed, explicitly ties his support for Cap and the decision to engage in his protest to his Christian faith. 
how many of the athletes did you find based their action on religion as opposed to basing their action on Trayvon Martin or the generalization of police brutality or knowing a particular victim? Well, several uh, were willing to, um, to mix it and to have it be both. And like they were informed by religion and informed by the struggle, not seeing them as, as counter, uh, counterimposed. Um, so you know, there, there was religion was an aspect for a lot of folks, but really in the kind of political liberation theology sense of the term, like this idea of seeing struggle and fighting racism as part of a, a religious mission. We do not hear from Colin Kaepernick himself in this book. Why right. not? Very purposefully. Because I, I, I truly believe that this story is not Colin Kaepernick's story. It's a collective story. And so, you know, his voice is not needed. Of course, I contacted Colin and told him I was doing the book. I sent him a copy of the book. I encouraged him to read the book. I haven't heard back from him in that regard. But I didn't necessarily want his voice in the book, even though it would mean probably for more sales or more media or more publicity. Because I think there's a kind of a, an unspoken political argument I'm trying to make that this isn't about one person. This isn't about Colin Kaepernick. This is about the effect that taking that knee had on so many people. If you had been asked in 2015 who the athletes were who would be most likely to spark such a monumental protest, how high would Kaepernick have been on your list? Probably not in the top 20. Um, and that's partly because of the sport he played, football. Like I wouldn't necessarily have seen it coming from football, but I guess the contradictions in football were just that intense. And also because Colin Kaepernick hadn't been outspoken up to that point. But, you know, he was a very, always has been a very intelligent, very soft-spoken person. So he wouldn't have been, so he would have been somebody who, if someone had asked me in 2015, I may not have even have considered him. Like, and also the quarterback position tends to be extremely conservative historically in the National Football League in terms of the locker room, in terms of its relationships with management. So it would have definitely have been quite the surprise to me to know that it was Colin Kaepernick. It just goes to show you, though, when it comes to politics and when it comes to social movements, there are always surprises. What accounts for the difference in how the various sports responded individually or collectively to the whole racial justice movement? I mean, leagues had different leagues had different strategies. The WNBA embraced it. The NBA made efforts to embrace it, although it took struggle from the WNBA first to get the NBA to embrace it. And the NFL decided to go full reactionary until they realized they needed to operate with more of a carrot and stick model, which we discussed earlier. So I think in some cases it has to do with the individual politics of the of the franchise owners. In some cases it has to do with the power of the players. And in some cases it has to do with what they projected the reaction of fans to be. Fans of the National Basketball Association being generally regarded as less conservative slash reactionary than fans of the National Football League. So a lot of factors went in and believe me, a lot of uh, lawyers and marketeers earned their money uh, by sitting around and thinking about what the response of their individual league should perhaps be. And looking at the high schools and colleges, 
did you come to any generalized conclusions about where the greatest locus of protest was in terms of distribution among different sports? Definitely high school. No question about it, because you have high schools now without football programs where people took a knee. Um, you have all kinds of high schools in this country. And I think the young people, they're, they're the motor of this book and they're the motor of our society for people who want to see social change. I started writing this book. I was very pessimistic. I started writing it at the start of the pandemic and that pessimism turned to optimism very dramatically um, by hearing the voices of these young people and their willingness to risk in order to make for a better world. So is a high school football player the archetypal young protester as opposed to a college basketball player or a college softball player or a cheerleader? I mean, I'm looking for, you know... I would say the high school athlete. Okay. Could you make generalizations about the distribution among the different sports? Uh, I mean, football was central, but, um, but I really can't because you would see it in different sports as well um, throughout the high school level. We know he was blacklisted because of his protest, but do we know how the Kaepernick effect affected Kaepernick? Yeah, I mean, he's without a job. I mean, you have to say that first and foremost. And second, he's become a symbol for a, a new generation of, of activists and protesters. Um, he's become, there was an effort by the National Football League to turn him into a ghost story, to haunt a young generation of players to say, don't speak out, but he's really become more of an animating spirit. And I think whatever future, whatever future is held at this intersection of sports and politics, it's going to be informed by the experience of Colin Kaepernick. You've written about Muhammad Ali. You were included in the Ken Burns documentary that just aired. Ali was reviled by a good portion of white America in the 60s and eventually became so beloved, he lit the Olympic flame in 1996. Martin Luther King was reviled by a good portion of white America in the 60s, and now his birthday is a federal holiday. Kaepernick has already won the Sports Illustrated Muhammad Ali Legacy Award. Will the broad public attitude towards Kaepernick follow a similar arc so that someday the NFL will be giving out the Colin Kaepernick Social Justice Award? No, I don't think the NFL will ever be able to really get away with that, but stranger things have happened. Um, I think Colin Kaepernick, we, we know what the pattern is. They'll probably, there'll be an effort to re-embrace Colin Kaepernick. And uh, there's going to have to be people who are around who say, wait a minute, you know, they're turning him into a Disney character instead of the actuality of who he was. And when they try and do that, you can take out your copies of The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, and remind people of what Colin Kaepernick did and how his single act rippled through society. And does it still have ripples today? Sure does. I get emails all the time. Love it. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Dave Zirin. Again, the book is The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World from our friends at the New Press. Next week on Mass and Book Beat, we're going to stick with sports and get ready for the Major League Baseball playoffs with an encore presentation of our conversation with Patrick Steele about his book from the UW Press, Home of the Braves, The Battle for Baseball in Milwaukee. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shali Pittman and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us and thank you for supporting listener-sponsored community radio. 
Now, as our friend Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener-sponsored community radio. <laughs>